This episode is brought to you by Awesome CX by Transcom. Awesome CX provides high-touch, personalized customer experience services to consumer brands of any size. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. This is episode 192, and today I sat down with Julie Rice, the co-founder and CEO of Peoplehood. Peoplehood offers 60-minute guided group conversations with up to 20 participants and intention, allowing you to speak freely and listen deeply. There's music and breath work to ease you into the experience. So whether you're looking to change old habits or build new connections, peoplehood is like a workout for your relationships. Julie talks with us about her love for theater as a child, how she started her career in talent management in New York, how she built and exited her first startup soul cycle, why she decided to start peoplehood and her tips for cultivating meaningful conversations. I hope you enjoy this episode, and thanks so much for listening. Hi, Julie. Thanks so much for joining me on the show today. I'm excited to hear your story in building peoplehood. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. So let's start from the very beginning. Where are you from originally? Let's talk about your childhood. What you know, kind of family did you grow up in? What was it like? Sure. I grew up in a suburb outside of New York City. It's called Ardsley, New York in Westchester, small town. My parents were both teachers in the beginning, and then my mom ultimately went on to become an antique dealer. Um, As you can imagine, we had a house filled with lots of stuff. My mom doesn't believe in owning one of everything. She thinks that if you find one treasure, that's the reason to start a collection of that type of treasures. (laughs) There are very few places to sit in my house. There are a lot of cabinets that light up and display a lot of things, but my mom likes to collect junk. Did you go to all those like antique like barns that had like all kinds of junk in it? My mom loved the like antique shopping and it was a nightmare as a young kid. Like it was the most boring thing. Nightmare. And the truth is my mom is actually a pretty gifted art historian. So she's the person that could, you know, dig the one treasure out of the barn and prove us all wrong. So we had to go back the next time. But I remember as a kid, like if we were driving, let's say from, you know, New York to Cape Cod for the weekend or for a summer vacation, it could take us three days to get there with all the stops that we had to make and all the antique shops and flea markets along the way. Oh my gosh. And as a result of it, you can imagine that I'm a complete minimalist. There are no family photos in my home. There's nothing on the counter. In fact, my kids always joke around that they're nervous that while they go to sleep, I'm going to go into their room and throw things away, which I do. <laughs> I always you know, there's no Sunday paper in my house on Mondays, gone by Sunday night. That is hilarious. I always wondered why I'm a little bit of a minimalist as well. I'm like, where does I come from? And my mom has a lot of stuff. Not yeah. like hoarder, but like definitely way too much stuff. And it just gets like, it's just so much. Like even Christmas gifts, it's just too much stuff. 
And so even for Christmas, I'm like, my kid's lucky to get a gift. You know, I'm like, <laughs> I was, you know, too spoiled as a kid with gifts. And I'm now kind of going the opposite direction. Yeah, totally get it. Totally get it. So you went to all these antique shops with your mom. And did you have any siblings? I have one brother. He lives in Texas and we are true opposites. He is a pilot and I'm afraid to fly. So we're about as different as two kids could get. And the one thing I will say is that growing up as a kid, I always from a very young age loved the theater. I got the lead in my first grade play. It's the crowning achievement of my life. And I like to say that started me off on a crazy path of becoming a nerdy theater kid. I loved to be in plays. I loved to work on productions. And I really think that being a part of all of that collaboration and creativity led me uh, down the path to where I am now. Absolutely. It's funny that your brother's a pilot and you have a fear of flying. I feel like if I had a fear of flying, I would, which it does get scary. Okay. Let's like being on a plane with turbulence is no fun for anybody. But I love, I mean, wouldn't you probably ask him like a ton of questions like to make sure. So what happens when this happens? And like, what's the real deal here? Like, does he help comfort you in any way now with flying? You know, he would, but the crazy thing is I don't even want to know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so you just don't ask. You'd rather naivety. Is I take bliss. a pill and I get on the plane. And that is what I do. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. I'm always like hoping I sit next to a pilot or something where I can be like, what was that? That's cool, right? Everything's fine. And if you look at the flight attendants I heard, you know, then, then you can kind of know what's going on. They wear it all on their faces. Yeah, definitely. So like this one time there was a fire alarm that went off in one of the bathrooms on the airplane. We were crossing the Atlantic. That wasn't fun. <laughs> <laughs> and Uh-oh. I guess someone had an e-cigarette, but they thought there was a fire. That was scary. <laughs> but yeah, that's when I saw like, it was the most awkward thing. Everybody was so calm. And the one flight attendant was like racing back and forth. And like, he was trying to find where the fire was. And I'm like, what is going on? Anyways, it was shocking how calm everybody was. And I was freaking out. Oh my God, that's crazy. Enough about that. So you were a theater kid and it sounds like there was a lot of creativity when you were younger. What about in terms of leadership? Is there any kind of signs of entrepreneurship or leadership when you were younger? Obviously being the lead in the play is a big deal, but anything else? I've gone on to become a lot less talented. I'll let you know that was the first and last lead I ever got in the production. But I will say, no, I always love leadership because the truth is I love organizing teams of people. For me, the great fun in any sort of business that I create is really about, you know, the collaboration and the different gifts that people can bring to a project. And so I was, you know, president of the student council. I always loved to do things like that. I always loved to lead committees. I was a captain of my swim team, even though I wasn't a great swimmer. Um, I had a lot of spirit and I, I had a lot of spirit and I was very organized. And so I always did like leadership positions and I always loved being involved and being a part of things. Community and team activity is something that I really have always loved participating in. So you swam on the swim team. What was your stroke? Backstroke. No. Counting those those ceiling tiles. Right? It's kind of relaxing, you know? It's kind of like, I loved backstroke. Everybody hated it because you have to like turn around and do the flip and it's a little, you have to like calculate how many strokes after you see the flags. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like do a somersault and you're always off because you can't see. But it's absolutely fun. you get to breathe absolutely. the whole time. That's what I liked about it. You just breathe. You get to breathe. Yes. You don't have to hold your breath for too long. That's great. So what was your dream when you were a kid? Did you want to be an actress? 
No, I think that by the time I got to the age of, you know, being able to think about what I really wanted to be when I would grow up in any serious way, I knew that I wanted to work in the entertainment business. I don't think that I wanted to be an actress or a movie star, but I did know that I wanted to be around, you know, at the time, theater. That's all that I really knew. And so, you know, during high school, I always tried to find internships or things where I could learn a little bit. And I ultimately wound up getting an internship at a talent agency. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. In the city? With, in the city. Uh-huh. I went in and I became the intern. And I did Which things one? like Xerox scripts. The first place that I worked was a place called Gold Star Talent. And we represented children, believe it or not. And then after that, I started to work at a place called Abrams Artists. And that ultimately, you know, my internships ultimately led me to becoming an agent and moving to Los Angeles, where I know you are right now. That's right. That's awesome. So you kind of went down the talent management track, it sounds like. I did. I've always loved artists. I've always loved sort of discovering artists and working with them and really understanding their potential. And so I worked with actors first as an agent, and then I became a manager. And I did that for almost 20 years between New York and Los Angeles. Wow. Where did you work in L.A.? In LA, I worked for a management company called Handprint Entertainment, and uh, it no longer exists, but it was run by a guy named Benny Medina, who people know as JLo's manager now. And at the time, it was very interesting. And I always say that I really learned a lot about building a brand from that experience because Benny was really one of the first people in the talent business that understood how to turn people into brands. You know, we were kind of the first place that really understood how to take Will Smith and make him a movie star and a music star and sell products. Same things with Jennifer Lopez, same thing with Sean Combs, and really understanding that actors could be more than people that stepped into roles and played parts, but sort of who were they as brands. And I will say that as I went on to create SoulCycle, I really think a lot of the things that I learned in the entertainment business absolutely kind of affected the way that I thought about brand building. In what way? Like, what are a few of those things? You know, just really understanding. I think when, you know, what I learned as we were beginning to build out the brand of a person, it was really, brand is really about, you know, who you want to be in the world. What does it feel like? What does it sound like? What does it smell like? What does it look like? You know, how do people feel when they see your image or they hear your voice? You know, how do you make people feel? And I think that's really what it was when we were building Soul Cycle. I really began to understand that, you know, the sum of the parts was not just how something looked or the words that you wrote or how it smelled. It was really about how does it make somebody feel? And really thinking about every aspect of that was something that I learned in Hollywood. Yeah, it's really interesting. One of my first internships was actually for a modeling agency. I think it's because I just wanted to model and I was curious and I didn't really believe in myself yet. So I was like, oh, I wonder if, uh, if I'm an you know, agent, you know, I'll get discovered because I'll be in the office. You know, the ideas right. that go through your head when you're not really sure totally. of yourself. Yeah. But yeah, that's interesting. So I was like, hmm, I wonder if she was an intern at a talent agency because you actually wanted to be an actor. But it sounds like you actually just enjoyed the talent side. No, it's funny. As I got older, I definitely got less confident being in front of people. I think I was like super aware of people around me that were more talented. And I kind of lost confidence in doing that, believe it or not. And still to this day, you know, well, I do do some public speaking now just because life has sort of put me in that position. But I would definitely say that I sort of grew out of wanting to be in the limelight. And ironically, you know, it's kind of what 
made SoulCycle successful, interestingly enough, neither Elizabeth or I were ever instructors at SoulCycle. We never taught classes. We never got up in front of rooms. It just wasn't something that either of us wanted to do. And I think as a result of it, there had never really been a fitness studio or business where kind of the model wasn't that the owner was the star of the show. And because we weren't, it allowed us to really think about how to put other people in the spotlight, more than one person in the spotlight, which ultimately allowed us to scale our business rather than just build a business around, you know, one personality. Yeah, absolutely. That's really interesting that you kind of saw that almost as like a white space of like, here's how everybody else is doing it. Here's what's different about us. Definitely. How else did you, you know, with your story with SoulCycle, where were you? What's the story of how you guys came up with the idea for SoulCycle? And if you can kind of go into the first couple of years of building that out. Definitely. You know, Elizabeth and I didn't know each other. It wasn't like we came up with this idea together. We had both been taking different classes at different gyms in New York City. At the time, you know, 2005 in New York City, there are no fitness studios. There's big box gyms. I like to take people back and say, you know, at that time in New York, there was no Lululemon lifestyle as, you know, exercises lifestyle was not a thing. People weren't walking around New York City holding green juice and black tights. It was kind of something that you did in New York because you needed to burn calories. It was on your to-do list. You competed with your neighbor and then you moved on and went to work. And I had just moved back from California, from LA. And the thing that I missed the most about Los Angeles was hiking with my friends and biking with my friends and a running club that I belonged to. I had really found a lot of my social life and exercise there. And when I came back to New York, I really missed that whole concept that, you know, exercise could be my community. It could be my free time. It could be what I did for me. And so I started talking to a teacher that I was I was taking class with. And I said to her, this could be different. This could be a brand. This could be a standalone experience. And she said to me, you know, there's a woman that's taking a class of mine at a different gym. And she's been talking about investing in a fitness business. You two should meet. And, you know, we went to lunch, Elizabeth and I, we like to joke around and say it was the best blind date we'd ever been on. And it was one of those lunches where we were so different. She had actually just moved from Colorado and was having the same experience that I was having. And when I left lunch that day, my cell phone rang before I even you know, hit the cab. And she said, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to research real estate and you look for towels and I'll call you on Thursday. And on Thursday, she called me and she had found an old dance studio in the rear lobby of a building on the Upper West Side. It was on Craigslist. It was $5,000 a month. And we met there on that Thursday and we went across the street after we saw the space and on the back of a napkin at Starbucks, we wrote our business model and we said that if we saw, you know, 100 people a day at $27 a bike, we could afford to pay the instructors, we could pay the rent, we could pay our childcare, we both had five month old babies at the time. And we'd have a little bit left over. And so that is kind of what we did, which is why, you know, when people ask me about, you know, did I always want to be an entrepreneur? Is it hard to be an entrepreneur? The funny thing is I never set out to be an entrepreneur. I never actually thought of myself that way until people started to use the word retroactively. Elizabeth and I continue to create products that we need. We create things for ourselves where we're the user. And so that's what we did. We just created something that we wanted to use. We didn't kind of look at the landscape of what was in the world and say, well, I see white space around something that could make us a lot of money. We just 
knew we needed better and more joyful exercise. And so we went for it. Right. Which is kind of the same thing. It's just coming from a different place, right? I guess of how you view it. That's really awesome. And so when you kind of look back, I, obviously there's a lot of challenges and hardship, but what are some of the most difficult moments for you in building Soul Cycle? And even before that, what were some challenging moments when you were in the talent management side? Yeah. Well, you know, in the talent management side, I would say that I grew up in Hollywood in the days where, you know, it was a real grind. I, I like to laugh when people talk to me about work-life balance because I didn't grow up in a culture like that at all. Where, where I grew up, it was a war of attrition. 25 people wanted your desk that, you know, did, couldn't even cover half your rent, by the way. But everybody wanted, to, everybody wanted to be in the movie business. It seemed so glamorous and we all killed ourselves to be there. And so I certainly had challenges then. The business that I was in, you know, representing clients, obviously, you know, clients can be difficult. That was certainly challenging. And I would just say it was a super competitive business. And, you know, you were, especially living in Los Angeles, you're constantly aware of what everybody else is doing, achieving, booking, how much money they're making. And I think that ultimately that environment for me, it turned out to be, you know, not the healthiest place and way to operate. That all being said, moving on to soul cycle, entrepreneurship brings its own challenges. I mean, you know, you don't have any clients, but you only have yourself to count on. There's nobody to turn to when problems happen. And, you know, you have a small amount of money and you have to make something happen with it. And so work days are bottomless. And, you know, that is kind of just the way that it is. And I, I always like to say when people say, you know, how did you know what to do? Or what did you do every day? How did you get the business started? And I, I used to just say that, you know, I just knew that I couldn't let the business fail. It was one of those things where it was, you know, you worked every day until you got done what you needed to get done. So being an entrepreneur obviously has its very high highs and its very low lows. And, you know, we had many challenges with SoulCycle. I think that, you know, in the beginning, the challenge was just to figure out how to get something open. Neither Elizabeth or I had ever created a business before. And so we were just learning on the job. We were super lucky to have each other. I would say that, you know, as an entrepreneur, having a business partner, if you can find the right partner is great, especially somebody that has different skill sets than you. I will say that a lot of time during our challenges, you know, there were things that I would think, oh my goodness, we're going to have to shut the doors. We're never going to be able to make this happen. We would be running low on money or we would make a mistake in terms of soundproofing or tech. And Elizabeth would say, you know, don't worry. I, you know, she was great at figuring that out and understanding how we could overcome those things. For her, people were a challenge. For me, people were not a challenge. And so we really were able to, you know, in those moments of crisis, we were really able to, you know, complement each other and get through some of those harder things, which was great. I would say some of the biggest challenges that we had at SoulCycle were around growth and expansion. You know, we create, we opened, and a year later, we had this booming business, which is a nice problem to have. But we had 35 bikes. We wound up squeezing about 42 in the room into our first studio. And after year one, we just didn't have enough room. We were starting to see wait lists and we were leaving money on the table and we really wanted to grow. But this was 2008 in New York when... Mm. <laughs> 
real estate was was real estate was booming and you know nobody wanted to give two female entrepreneurs that were making a bunch of cash but had no credit and we weren't a national retailer nobody wanted to rent us any space and so we were really constrained with the way that we were able to grow and it was pretty frustrating because we were watching other studios open and we were sort of handing away business and then you know, to our great luck or the detriment of this country, you know, 2008 collapsed. And then all of a sudden, two women with, you know, positive cash flow that could pay their rent every month and had a business that was booming seemed like a great tenant to have. And all of a sudden, we were able to scale. And that was really interesting the way that the real estate market turned for us. Yeah, that's really interesting. And can be really tough. I mean, there's always growing pains. It's funny that you say that you were maybe a little better with people than your co-founder. It probably comes from a lot of your experience and being a talent manager. I keep going back to that because the personalities are... That world is so different than like every other business world, I feel like, and just the, the different types of personality traits you have to deal with. It's a lot. Absolutely. And the truth is, you know, by the time that Elizabeth and I left SoulCycle, we had about 300 instructors that were teaching SoulCycle classes, all of whom had their own unique personalities and actually incredible gifts as well. And I think part of the reason we were able to create such a great company was just that both Elizabeth and I really respected each and every one of them as artists. And that's the way they were treated. And uh, I think when you talk about managing, you know, different types of personalities, I think when you really want to work with creative people, that has to be, you know, an allowance that you make. Definitely, definitely. So as you kind of like, and I think you spent almost 10 years at SoulCycle. And so can you talk a little bit about your transition out and how you came up with the idea for peoplehood? Sure. Yeah, Elizabeth and I ran SoulCycle for almost 11 years. It was fantastic. We really loved it. We ultimately wound up selling the business to Equinox. And, you know, we transitioned out. We took about a year to transition out of the business. And I will say that while we were at SoulCycle, you know, we learned a lot of amazing lessons in those 11 years. And I think the number one thing that we learned was people came to SoulCycle for the exercise, but what they were really coming for was each other. They were coming back to support each other. They were coming back for the breakthroughs that they had in those rooms, the dark rooms with the music playing and the instructors telling you you could be more than you thought you were. And they would have these incredible connections with each other and with themselves. And we began to understand that people really need this kind of connection. And yet they don't have the skills to have connected conversations. They'd come out of these dark rooms and want to call their mom or tell their spouse how they felt. And yet we don't really have the spaces, the tools that we need, or the structure to make these conversations happen. And simultaneously, as our organization grew, Elizabeth and I started to work with a coach to learn how to communicate with each other better, and then how to help our organization communicate differently. And as we began to learn these skills, we began to understand that you know human beings are not given the tools that they need to be in productive and deep relationships. And so we began to think about what would it look like to create something that was relational fitness, a place where we could teach people how to listen to each other, how to talk to each other, where you could build a different kind of muscles, empathy muscles, listening muscles, understanding muscles. And I think that you know one of the really fascinating things is that 
As humans, we've all come to understand if we want to have healthy bodies, we have to exercise, we have to eat certain foods. You don't get to eat broccoli one time and think like, okay, I did it, green vegetables, done for my whole life, or go for one long run and think, great, my heart's in shape forever now. And yet somehow, or we'll go to school to get a degree in something we want to become an expert in. We'll go to therapy to make sure our mental health is good. And we don't go to therapy one time, we go over and over. And yet for some reason, we spend no intentional time and we don't create any sort of learnings or programs around the skills for the way that we treat each other, which is very interesting and very backward considering that. When you look at all of the information out there, what we do know for sure is that we cannot lead physically or mentally healthy lives without being in productive relationships. That's the number one factor that contributes to our physical and mental health is who we love and who loves us. And yet, somehow we just assume we'll become parents, our instincts will kick in. You know, we'll get married, we'll just be able to compromise. I'll go to my first job and I'll know how to navigate a toxic workplace. And, you know, it's interesting because we spend so much of our lives and our time in these relationships, and we really don't spend the intentional time figuring out how to be in these relationships. And so we kind of came up with the idea for peoplehood, understanding that if we could give people a place and a structure and some skills and make it a good time, and not just a place where people could come once, but a place where people could come and practice, just like they practice moving their bodies, you know, coming to peoplehood over and over again, you begin to see conversations at your dinner table change, in your office change, with your partner change. That's what people who are coming to these gathers are really reporting. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Customer service and call centers are rarely topics that people get excited about. But Awesome CX is simply different. Their inclusive culture rooted in wellness and fun means that their teams are encouraged to be their best selves personally and professionally by providing them with everything from mental health and healthcare resources to career development. And regardless of the size of your business, Awesome CX is uniquely positioned to support you throughout your growth. They work with some of the fastest growing startups like FabFitFun, Carbon38, Lettuce Grow, Mudwater, and so many more. Want to see it to believe it? Just email me directly at lee, L-E-E, at stairwaytoceo.com to request to join one of their coffee chats where you can meet with their amazing team and witness the agent engagement yourself. You'll be so impressed. I can't wait for you to learn more about Awesome CX to make your brand's customer experience awesome. Thank you so much to our incredible sponsors for supporting the Stairway to CEO podcast. Now let's get back to the show. What did you think that this would be and what are you kind of learning it's becoming? Yeah, let me take a step backward and say that Peoplehood is a 60-minute conversation experience. Uh, we do it physically in our Chelsea studio and we do it digitally on our online platform at peoplehood.com. And so people anywhere can experience it. It's one hour, which starts with some breath work. We work with some scientists and researchers so we can understand how to take your brain out of fight or flight, take away the stress so that you could really begin to hear people. We sit in the circle or on the screen with about 15 or 16 other people. We do some sharing in community and then we do some one-on-one -on -one sharing. And we do it all in a structure that's really teaching us the most important skill, which is learning how to listen. 
You know, we all think we need to go to a dinner party or be in a meeting and have the best idea or the best story. But the truth is what people really want from people they are in relationships with is to feel heard by them, to feel seen by them, to feel like their opinions matter to somebody. You don't need to agree with everything somebody else says to you. You don't even have to see anything the same way. But people need to feel like they are heard. That is something that I have learned as a leader. I have learned as a mother. And so that's what goes on in in these conversation circles. We're really allowing people to have moments to share and then have self-realizations. But at the same time, we're also teaching them how to recognize themselves in others. And so what I thought it would be a place where people would come and learn all of these amazing things that they could take outside of the room and ultimately work on their relationships with. But what I think we're seeing is that people are getting so much by being in these rooms. We're seeing people make new friends. People are taking intentional time to step away from their phones and process what's going on in their own lives. I think it is giving people perspective. I think post-COVID, people are super lonely. And this idea of being together and hearing what other people are worried about or hoping for or are proud of, I think, you know, especially with hybrid work these days, we are all so disconnected. Having these opportunities to be in places where other human beings are sharing candidly is very reassuring. And when it comes to the sharing, I guess, what are the biggest things people are sharing? And is it like topic driven? So if like you want to share about work stuff, you go to this group at this time, like how does it work in terms of like sharing in the topics? Absolutely. So we do have certain cohorts, right? We have motherhood where moms come to talk about issues with children, hopes, dreams, concerns. We have couplehood, which is great because you actually come with your partner. And so you're doing a lot of the work of connection and getting to know each other better in that hour. We have peoplehood at work where we're going in and working with teams, which is fabulous. Again, to the point of work teams are remote, hybrid. There is no water cooler anymore. People don't get to know each other without, you know, collaboration and knowing your teammates. It's very hard to be productive. We have a program that we do at work called the Silo Buster, where we take two different teams and help them get to know each other better, which also creates you know, cross-functional productivity in a a big way. And then the regular peoplehood groups are topic-driven. You know, this week we're talking about money at peoplehood. How do we all feel about money? It's one of the biggest relationships in our lives. You know, what are our fears? You know, what are we willing to spend money on? What are we not willing to spend money on? Do we hope to make more money? Are we proud of our what money we make? All of those types of things. Some weeks we talk about love, some weeks we talk about challenges, some weeks we talk about growth. There are always themes that come up for us, and there are prompts and questions that we're answering around that. And there's a guide in the room who takes you through it. The guide always shares first and tells you know his or her own stories, and so they allow the room to feel comfortable to share. And I would say, you know, in the end, it's always fun and uplifting, even though everybody kind of has a light bulb moment and maybe realizes something about themselves that was deeper than they thought. I think people really feel better when they leave than when they came. That's great. And when you say guide, what would you say is the difference between like one of your guides and maybe a coach? And how do you think about coaching and how it, what you're doing with peoplehood and how it relates or doesn't relate? Definitely. So... Our guides are, you know, 
they're really there to be, you know, participants and witnesses. That is one of the peoplehood rules. We are not giving each other advice. The guide is not giving us advice. We're giving each other time. We're giving each other our attention. We are supporting each other. But part of the rules at peoplehood are, you know, we don't give advice. We don't give opinions. There's no judgment. When somebody's sharing, we're not adding on to their stories and saying, oh, me too. Let me tell you about what happened to me. What we're doing at Peoplehood is really giving somebody the space to peel the layers of their own onion. And it's funny because people say to me all the time, so what, you just go in there and listen? And everyone thinks that's so easy. And everyone comes out and says, oh, that was the hardest thing I ever did. I wanted to say this, or I wanted to tell this person that that happened to me too, or whatever. And you begin to realize how infrequently we actually take in what somebody is saying rather than forming our own rebuttal or what we want to say. We really don't absorb people in the way that they mean for us to absorb them that often. I wonder if it's just because we're so busy trying to relate. So it's like one person says something and you're like, oh, yeah, me too. I experienced this. And it's because you want to relate to that person and feel that connection. How do you Definitely. think of that versus just not saying anything and then just listening? Is it the same? Are you building the same connection? I actually think in many ways you're building a deeper connection. People want to be known. There's that old joke about, you know, how there's one person that goes to the dinner party and all they can think about is they want to tell the best stories and they want to entertain everybody and, you know, be the life of the party. And then there's another person that sits there and doesn't say a thing and just listens to people. And that's the person that people always go home and go, oh, my God, you know who was the best guest at the party? And it's always the person that said nothing and just sat there and listened. And think about it. Think about, you know, on a night you go out with a good friend and they just sit there and they allow you to talk about what you need to say. So I think that listening in many ways, obviously connection is great. And of course, sharing our life experiences with the people that we are close with are also important. But I think an under-practiced and under-appreciated skill is listening. Yeah, I agree. And it's fascinating that you've kind of created a place for people to come and be heard, basically. That's really incredible. And I'm just curious, like, what are some things that you've learned or tips that you have for people that are trying to connect with their teams better? There's a ton of remote working, like you were saying. But what are some tips for getting to know each other? You know, there's all these like icebreaker questions and things you can Google. But like at its core, how do you approach getting to know someone? Yeah, look, I think that, you know, we've spent now the past three, four, five years having Zoom happy hours or trying to get people together in ways that, you know, have no real agenda and no intention. I think that, you know, in a very short amount of time with the right structure and the right intention, you can allow people to get to know each other. You know, if a leader can create a conversation around whatever is going on for that team at the moment, and then also create the space where people feel safe enough to share honestly in it, that's very, very powerful. You know, people don't want to spend two hours on a Zoom happy hour talking about their weekend. If there's a lack of trust and transparency, people want to talk about that. People want to be able to say what they want to say and help move on as a team. And so I do think that, you know, team leaders creating intentional time with thoughtful conversation topics is a real way to continue to move forward. Also, I think, you know, it's really about creating a culture where these conversations happen. 
you know, again, to the point of peoplehood, it's not a one-time thing. It's like when a team knows that they're going to be able to have a monthly conversation where they're all going to be able to empty their bucket, talk about the things that are really on their mind, the challenges, the things they want to work through together. When that becomes part of a culture, it becomes a norm where when teammates are encouraged to give each other real life feedback, because that's just part of the culture of the way the office exists. I do think that is what brings people together. That's interesting. I mean, cultivating conversations is not very easy <laughs> to do, I think. I mean, I've hosted a lot of different dinners and just, you know, with teams and trying to bring people together and open up. I mean, I try to do it on the podcast every time I do an interview. And so totally. I'm just curious, like, what are some maybe, I don't know, like prompts or questions? Like, what are some of your favorite questions that you like to ask to kind of cultivate deeper conversations? Yeah, you know, it really depends on what the team is talking about. But I can tell you that in regular peoplehood, when you sit down in the circle, a question that we ask every time is, how are you doing really? And it's amazing that by adding the really on and giving people the permission to know that they have two minutes where a whole circle of people is genuinely there to listen to them, like it is their time. They are not bumping into somebody in the grocery store who is also leaning over them because they need to get the apples and get out of the store. It's, you know, 14 people that are staring, sitting there knowing that you have that time on the timer and you can really go into it and take your time and tell somebody, how are you really doing? There's nobody that doesn't want to answer that question. When I first started the business, we all thought, oh my God, what are people going to say? Are people going to, you know, feel shy to go deep? Let me tell you, when you sit in the circle and ask somebody that question and they know that the mic is there and it's theirs for that amount of time, people go deep fast. People want a place to tell you how they are doing. Ask somebody what's keeping them up at night. Ask somebody what their biggest challenge is. You know, ask somebody about a parenting mistake that they feel like they've made in the last month. You know, ask somebody, you know, about a conflict at work. All of those things, if you give people places and space to really talk about those things, number one, people want to get it off their chest. But number two, people can really work through a lot of their own stuff when you give them the space to do it. That's really interesting to hear that people open up so quickly. I think I almost heard you say staring at you. And I'm imagining the 14 people staring at me if I'm in one of these groups. And then it's like, okay, Lee, here's your floor. How are you doing? Really? I'd be like, I wouldn't have words. I'd just... <laughs> I don't know what I'd say. Well, first of all, I just want to say in real life, the lights are low. The room is very calm. And I wouldn't say that people are staring at you. It's a super mellow environment. In fact, in our Chelsea location, we've really, you know, it feels super, super great. There's a coffee bar. You can get a glass of wine. You can buy a sweatshirt on your way in. The lighting is amazing. It really feels like a place that you want to hang in. I would absolutely say there's a real vibe. And online, we've tried to also create a digital platform that feels much more relaxing, much more communal. Our video platform plays music really well. Everybody's able to really hear it as well as hear the guide. And so there's a vibe on the platform as well. I think both experiences feel quite comfortable and actually very uplifting. And so it's interesting because you kind of said mental fitness. And I love that idea that this is like a mental fitness concept. When you go to a gym or you're working out, you get to see maybe hopefully some physical changes, right? And so I think that you're probably also seeing your customers see some changes. I don't know, how many sessions do you need? Or when do you think people start seeing changes? And in, in, in what way? I know you mentioned like empathy muscles, listening muscles. 
I guess some of those can take effect pretty immediately. But do you have any kind of like stories maybe of customers that have really, truly changed their life in some way from these meetings? Definitely. I mean, we have one couple that you know, came to couplehood and had really tried a lot of different things. And they sent us a note after being in one couplehood session saying that, you know, in 60 minutes in couplehood, you know, they had gotten more connected than they had been in the past two years, that they really just felt like this really distilled it down for them. And it was, you know, it was changing, you know, the quality of their relationship almost instantly. Now, you know, something that's interesting is like everything that we practice, right? We need to continue to do it so that we can begin to see further and further change. But I can tell you that, you know, if I go to a motherhood session and then I sit down at the dinner table at night with my two girls, I am much more aware when they are telling me about their day rather than saying when somebody tells me they didn't do well on test or, you know, whatever the story that night is, rather than saying, well, did you go to your teacher? Did you ask for help? Just finishing it out and listening to it, you know, because usually there's more, you know, usually it's not, oh, I didn't do well on my test. And then I would jump in and say, well, what are you going to do about it? Did you go? And usually my kid will end up saying, you know, and I feel really disappointed because I really prepped for it. And it seems like everybody else knew, and I'm not sure why I didn't, you know, whatever it is. And it winds up going to a different place where my response to it would be maybe much more comfort than advice giving or, you know, just really taking a pause. I think that is what is missing from today's world is everybody just taking a beat before we jump in on it, before we respond on social media, before we, you know, have to post to the world about how we're feeling about every single thing. Elizabeth and I learned very early on when we started to work with our coach, we do business meetings in two parts. You know, whenever we have some sort of a big decision or a conflict, we both come to the first meeting with all of our hot-headed thoughts and knowing that we are definitely right and it should be our way. And we sit there and we each just have the floor and we listen and then we go home. And inevitably, when we come back the next day to solve the problem, I can tell you that you know nine out of 10 times, we've absolutely switched sides, that we've had a night to think about it and now I can see it her way and she can see it my way. And somewhere in there, I actually believe was the success of SoulCycle. Because we actually took two different people's opinion, two different users, two different customers, and we were able to take two points of view and put them together and make it, you know, a better experience for more people or make the right decision, not just the decision we would have made for ourselves. And so I really think that there is something about that. There's something about stepping back and letting somebody finish that is very powerful. Absolutely. It's really interesting you said that. I mean, I feel like our natural instinct, or at least for type A's and entrepreneurs specifically, you are a problem solver. So you've got an issue. I have a solution. Let me be creative and use those creative problem solving skills I have. You know, I know for myself, that's the my immediate reaction is like, yes, how can I help? Okay, let's solve this problem. Let's get to work. But you're right. Being able to step back, especially if there's a conflict, having that time to let it breathe, I think, and then revisit that's definitely something I've learned in my own relationships with, you know, disagreements and feeling like, okay, we're not going to get anywhere because we're really just butting heads right now. Let's continue this conversation maybe tomorrow where we can sleep on it after we've heard each other. And then you're like, oh, okay. And then you can have just a different tone in your voice. You can have a different approach to it when you give it some space. Yeah. And, you know, especially with a partner, it's very easy, especially after you've been with somebody for a while and to get into these communication patterns where 
you know, you're really just having the same conversation over and over again. It doesn't matter what the topic is. You're really just fighting or in conflict about who does more and whose time is more important than just name it, whatever you want to name it. But those are the things. And whether you realize it or not, I mean, you are living in conflict. And so figuring out how to break that communication pattern is very, very interesting. One thing that I've learned from practicing peoplehood over and over again is I don't even need to be in conflict to not take a pause and butt in and tell somebody what to do. And it's just like what you said. Normally, I'm just trying to be helpful. But before I let somebody finish their sentence, I always have the answer for them or a guy I know that could help them or a person I could connect them to or something. Sometimes I think my friends must think I'm such like an annoying know-it-all because I always have a suggestion. Yeah. When really, I just want to help people. But it is funny. I have found myself often now biting my tongue and saying, like, you know what? Nobody asked you. <laughs> yeah. You're like, but maybe they are. <laughs> totally. Very hard. I think Very they want to know. I know they want to know. They want to know hard. how I can help. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, I know we're running out of time, but I would love to hear before we wrap up. What is next for peoplehood as you think about growing this brand? I know you have a location in New York. I'm sure you're expanding. Where can we expect you to expand to next, if at all? And what's some final advice you have for entrepreneurs tuning into the show? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think this is going to be a big year for peoplehood at work. We've started to go into many different companies and we're seeing culture and communication really improve across teams, within teams. And I think we're pretty excited about, you know, helping uh, workers make this transition from, you know, hybrid and remote workplaces to feeling a bit more included and a bit less lonely with some of the different programs that we're running inside of, of different workplaces. So I think that's really going to be a big year for peoplehood in terms of, of at-work programs. And my advice for entrepreneurs is, you know, I, I always like to say that there are a couple of things that I think very early on were the secret to just, you know, making SoulCycle happen, which were, you know, small steps, small steps lead to big dreams, right? I remember waking up every day and just writing down the three most important things that had to be done before I went to bed that night. And just making sure that those were done and then moving on the next day to three more things. I think often we get really caught up in this big idea that we have and it seems so big and we're thinking about, you know, when thousands of people will be using it. And the truth is, you know, three things a day and focusing on making sure that every customer that comes through your door or your screen wants to come back. Those are really the things that, you know, I'm always amazed at how much easier it is to retain somebody that already has an appetite to do something than it is to go and market and acquire new ones. And then I think the other thing is, you know, trusting your gut. I think that if you have a big idea and it's something that you are brave enough and committed enough and tireless enough to run after and try to make happen, you have to listen to yourself and trust yourself. You are probably the best person to create it. And you probably really know what that idea needs. Absolutely. Awesome, Julie. Well, thank you so much for sharing your inspiring story and building peoplehood. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.